0: It's a privilege to welcome to our series our next guest, Audet Exel AO, Chair and Founder of Adara Group. Audet, thank you so much for your time this morning, privilege as I said to have you on the program.
1: Delighted to be here, Thanks um, thanks for offering to have me come and have a chat to you.
0: Thank you so much. Let's start from the start if we could. Born in New Zealand in the south but raised in the north in the 1960s, tell us a little bit about your background and your childhood if you could.
1: Yeah, very proud Kiwi. I only became an Australian last year, so I'm a proud Kiwazi now. Um, Raised of incredibly good people. My dad was a journalist, my mum was a brilliant secretary, and they're people who taught me and taught their kids, you know, what matters in life is what you give, not what you take, and above all, respect everybody. So I grew up in a country deep in values, never worrying about education or healthcare, or was I going to be safe or was there going to be enough food, and surrounded by beautiful nature. So, you know, really that start in life, has you know laid the groundwork for me for everything that, that unfolded, and I'm deeply grateful for it.
0: And also spent a lot of time, as I understand it, in Singapore in your later years. Tell us a little bit about the transition between New Zealand and Singapore. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So that as a kid, um, my dad was um, working for NZPA, Vietnam War was happening. So it was, I think, a quite a profound influence on me. We were up there for a few years, and... I think being a kid in such a multicultural place as Singapore, Asia in the 60s, right, was just such an incredible gift in my life. I remember, I profoundly remember coming back to New Zealand and and, um, standing in a schoolyard, astonished that all the kids in the school looked like me. And so I think it sort of deeply set in me a sense of, well, first of all, what it feels like to be the odd one out. You know, as was a little blondie with the blue eyes in, in wonderful Asia in the 60s. But secondly, this just love of language, culture and diversity in Asia in particular. And as an adult, I went on to live in Hong Kong for a period and I've always felt very, very drawn there. So, yes, it, it was a wonderful opportunity as a kid to be exposed to a wider world than just New Zealand.
0: Let's fast forward to 1980 and you enrol in an arts and law degree at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about your experiences at university, originally at New Zealand, and then you found yourself in Melbourne of all places.
1: Yes, I mean, two totally different universities, right? So varsity, as we call it in in New Zealand. I was a sort of troublemaking activist. I studied law and arts. I wanted to be an officer of the court. I was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement, the feminist um, movement. I was a mad keen skydiver in those days. So, you know, it was a truly wonderful life for a young woman. And university in New Zealand was rich. It was rich in people and university. I was paid by the state $23 a week to go to university. There were no university fees, enough money to to pay my rent or or pay for food. And so as a result of that structure, university was full of people who thought differently. So that first three years really set me up. Then um, I came across to Australia um, to um, jump as a rookie skydiver in the Australian National Parachute Champs, busted up my knee and ended up um, having to stay and finish my law degree and uh, uh, finished the arts degree by then, finished the law degree at Melbourne University. Blue blood. Kids who drove to school uh, in their own cars. I was cleaning office buildings and hotels to pay my way through University in New Zealand and I did that in Australia too, once I um, literally and figuratively got on my feet. But the contrast between the two universities and the, the experience was another of those pivotal moments of thinking for me because I realized it was an entire world the world of, of power and capital, and people of, of advantage that I really didn't know about. And so that kind of added to the layers of my thinking and set me up, if you like, for what, what came next.
0: I have to ask skydiving, what, what was that all about? Oh,
1: I jumped for years, 15 years, jumped all over the world, jumped on the Hong Kong team. It's counterculture. Taught me a lot about, I'm, and I still have, I, I still am a jumper. I still look at the clouds and wonder, you know, how fast the wind's moving, and think about what it feels like to sit in the door of a plane before you get out with some of your best mates. I, I just loved that part of my life and those people, and it also taught me a lot about stepping outside the stream, the mainstream. You know, people think you're a bit crazy if you're if you're jumping out of airplanes on the weekend, but actually, what you see as counterculture is wonderful and taking risk as long as you take it in a measured way kind of enhances your life and so you know for all those years of jumping you know it just has enhanced my life beyond measure and i very occasionally think although i know i know i'm too old and my reaction speeds aren't fast enough gee i wouldn't mind you know, being in the door of an aeroplane and, and in the sky right now. So yeah, it was a great part of my life. Risk taking is something that I've never been afraid of, but I'm pretty good at managing it too. By
0: 1984, you complete your undergraduate and postgraduate law degrees and so begins the start of your executive career working as a solicitor in Sydney, what, what happened next?
1: Yes, well, so for I got I decided to, to move out of human rights, social justice, officer of the court into, oh my God, I need to learn about power and capital. So I'm going to find who's the best at that in Australia and sort of stepped out of my, my tribe, if you like, put makeup on for the first time in my life, put down my placards and decided I'm going to go learn business, horrified my tribe. But for me, fabulous learning journey and, and into a world that I was very new to me but also that revealed to me how prejudiced I'd been standing on one side of the fence and not understanding how much value and intellect and contribution there could be on the other side and in fact you know as my life has unfolded it's really been all about understanding that That if you stand on a mountain throwing stones at somebody you can affect change that way but there's another great way to affect change which is to engage and adara which we'll talk about you know our, our tagline is bridging worlds and the start for me of bridging worlds was the step into allen's into business and then from there it unfolded you know once you're in those places away you go so then it was Linklaters in hong kong and then it was banking in bermuda it all sort of unfolded from there but for all, at all times for me thinking about how do I use this power, a capital, intellect, knowledge and understanding to affect change? How do I bridge that divide in a small way to manifest that belief? But yeah, Alan's, that, well, that was an amazing time to be a young woman and a young lawyer in the 80s. And, um, and I'm still very good friends with many of those, those Alan's partners. And, and lucky that I was in that firm for sure.
0: You referenced your stint in hong kong there with link which i think was around about 1987. how did you end up in hong kong and what were your experiences there
1: oh hong kong was so great and and you know of course now we watch what's happening in hong kong and if you i guess it's the same with everybody right wherever you've lived you sort of can smell it forever so as an experience being in the heart of asia before the changeover sitting on the bottom of china you know, as China was awakening, if you like. Um, how did I get there? Alan's basically opened the door for me to go to Linklater's because I told them I wanted to walk, work overseas. And I also had a very lucky meeting with a brilliant Linklater's partner, so he helped. What was the experience like? Transformative in terms of, you know, being a, a young woman in her 20s who suddenly finds herself in the big wide world working really hard, but every weekend. Are oh, we going to Taipei this weekend? Or so let's go to India or let's go to the Philippines. You know, Hong Kong is the center and and another place where I still have very dear friends and a lot of my heart. Um, and having watched Hong Kong now from that time through the handover into the change and now obviously really struggling with holding on to one country, two systems, um, you know it's 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 been a fascinating j- journey um and it's a place that i'll always love for sure
0: what's your reading or gauge on the situation in hong kong at the moment
1: i think it's huge complexity i think um uh, it's interesting I, I think um in a way what's the struggle in hong kong ep- epitomizes a, a struggle that that we're seeing in other places in the world and we have for millennia which is that people who have a form of economic freedom it will not tolerate, for a long period of time, any form of oppression to their freedom. And so um, the Hong Kong people are enormously pragmatic, but they have lived a very um, economically free life. And I think the generation that's come through, you know, the globally inspired digital youngsters, are looking, have been looking at their life and, you know, the the umbrella revolution that happened and and saying, you know, we want something different to what the party um, has in mind for us. And so that struggle is important and it's real and it's very, very complicated in terms of how that's going to unfold for Hong Kong society. And we see some of the same Um, issues, we see that obviously in different ways in Iran, for instance, at the moment, we're seeing complexity in China with the COVID zero piece, but also a sort of sense of, you know, what people ultimately yearn for is the right, um, not necessarily to have a democratic vote, but the right to choose the course of their life. And I think that that's a struggle that, that people have in common. You can only stand on people's head for so long, is my view, until at some point they say this is enough for me now, and um, I'm either going to stand up for my own rights and, and I'm prepared to lay my life down for them or I'll stand up for the rights of my children. You saw that in South Africa. It's heartbreaking to um, see Hong Kong go through that struggle and I, I think you know, that the picture is going to unfold from, from here. I don't believe in the binary discussion of what's going on in China. The bad guy, the good guy, you know, the West, we're all perfect, China, they're not. It's not that simple. There's all sorts of shades of grey in that, but the evolution of a society to, uh, of the size of China, including Hong Kong, towards a form of economic and, and ultimately and wider forms of freedom, oh my goodness, that's a complicated journey. And it's only just beginning to play out, I think. So all China watchers, I think, are, are watching. We all, we all love that part of the world and that country.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but by the late 1980s, you became somewhat of a specialist in international finance, which then led you in 1992 to Bermuda. Tell us about transition.
1: Yeah, that First. sounds a bit mad, doesn't it? <laughs> so, and I don't know that I'd ever call myself a specialist in just about anything, but I did work in Focus Way for acting for banks with link-laders, um and doing um, sort of global and international finance. Um, Bermuda actually, um, the connection there came it, because of firstly Hong Kong, prior to the changeover, more than half of the Hong Kong uh, Stock Exchange effectively redomiciled its non-Hong Kong based assets into Bermuda. So if you're doing deals with the listed Hong Kong companies, you were doing work through Bermuda. And I actually ended up going to Bermuda to close a deal when I was in Hong Kong as a young lawyer at Linklater's, actually against, acting for the banks against Bond, Alan Bond, uh, infamous Australian. And I went to Bermuda to close this complicated global deal in relation to Bond's involvement in Chile. And I walked around the island and I thought, wow, this place is the world's best kept business secret. You know, the largest reinsurance market in the world, huge number of people doing business there, but very, very high quality, OECD whitelist, very uh, tight controls on capital. And so I sort of bookmarked it in my head as this place is interesting. Um, I then took a couple of years off and travelled for quite a period of that on a push bike and at the end of that realised, gee, I'm never going to be a Linklater's man and I'm never going to be an Allen's man. What am I going to do next? I think I might go to Bermuda, Um, which is how I ended up there. So it was a bit of a circuitous route, I guess a lot of my life is like that, but certainly the Hong Kong connection took me there. And Bermuda was a wonderful home. I was there for 14 years, I thought I'd be there for a couple. Um, It's an hour and a half away from New York, it's six hours away from the UK. It's the largest reinsurance market in the world, some very, very smart people, deeply warm culture of Bermudians, particularly black Bermudians who, who, whose ancestors came in as slaves, really great people, and you're living on the beach. So <laughs> I kind of ticked all the boxes. Um, so yeah, Bermuda was, was a, great, um, a great step for me, a strange step, but a great step.
0: What's life like there? Because uh, many Australians would know where it is. There's, I think, some high-profile Australians that are based there, or at least their companies are based there. But what's it like actually living there on the ground?
1: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it's privileged to live in anyone else's country, right? So I start with that. It's a very international place. So you are in this, in New York every week. Or you're in London once a month, you know, you are the, you, the markets working between the London market and the New York market and Bermuda. So people do work hard, and the reinsurance market is full of very smart men and women who are doing very complicated work with uh, reinsurance and insurance balance sheets. So the work is interesting. It's a fascinating country in terms of its own history. Um, division between white Bermudians who came in um, uh, effectively as pirates in the early days when the British um, were shipwrecked on Bermuda shore, black Bermudians who were brought in as slaves and then this expat community, global expat community that sort of interposed in between. I was very lucky in that I ended up um, uh, running one of uh, Bermuda's three banks, and it was the Black Bank of Bermuda. So I had 95% Black Bermudian staff, which gave me instant family and a kind of a whole look into that culture and that world. And again, still very close friends with a lot of those people. So, so I got to live quite a full life in um, in Bermuda and stayed a lot longer than I thought I would. And I joke when I'm in Bermuda that I consider myself to be a Bermudian. They run the um, the business very clean and the tax haven label um, I think is a pretty um, a harsh label to apply to a country that regulates itself to the standard for the insurance market for instance of solvency to for the banking market controls capital flows no um, uh, offshore banking or um, run through the island so yeah it's it's a fascinating place to live and um, but as I say I couldn't believe I stayed that long but it'll always have a piece in my heart
0: you referred to it there by 1983, you're appointed managing director of Bermuda Commercial Bank at the age of 30, one of the, possibly still the youngest female in the world to ever run a commercial bank. Tell us about your appointment to that position.
1: If I look at my life, and I, and I when I look at other people's lives, sometimes doors open, and if you are lucky enough to be courageous and leap through them, things can unfold for you. So a door opened for me. I, I actually had the, the bank, It was a a publicly traded bank that was had a block of shares a controlling block owned by barclays Um, it was as i said the black bank in bermuda had a really deep connection to black bermudian society as it desegregated so i was incredibly impressive history barclays had sort of done nothing with it run it into the ground and then announced that they were going to sell their block and so i was had just arrived on the island and was working as a lawyer and i sort of went on this slightly crazy one woman mission to find someone to buy the Barclays stake um, because I believed the bank was really important and I also believed it was a huge business opportunity. So I did find this um, uh, very controversial character and brilliant man actually um, to buy that block of shares and I did the legal work for him. I negotiated the deal with Barclays and on the night we had the closing dinner, he basically sat me down and said, you talked me into buying this tin pot bank so now you can run it, um, and, which was a bit of a shock. Um, but again, one of those doors that open where you know, you decide, okay, the door's open, I'm gonna step through. Huge learning experience. And took me from providing advice to balance sheets as a lawyer to actually be responsible for one, um, which is a fantastic step if you get the chance. And to do it as a young woman, the great thing about being young is you have to respect everybody who works for you, including the guy who opens the doors because they know more than you do and so I was able I think by virtue of the fact that I was young to sort of build a really participative management style and team and unleash people who because they'd had a whole bunch of you know old guys from Barclays sitting on their head had not been unleashed and and people are magnificent and and that team in there when I got in there they were totally magnificent And, and so I was able to kind of ride Um, their ability and their skills to turn the bank around and, and it was just a fantastic experience.
0: Really, that was one of the components, one of the major components in, in turning the bank around. I'm also interested what the what were the other components? You grew market share, you grew profitability. I think the bank had $2.7, $2.6 billion of funds under management at the time. You grew that to around about four and a half to five billion. How did you go about restructuring?
1: Yeah, we were the best performing bank on the stock exchange. Simple, good old fashioned business, right? Figure out how you differentiate yourself. Do what you do really, really well. Great service. Uh, to customers. We had the world's largest reinsurance market on our doorstep. Global payments, it was the name of the game. The other banks were pretty damn useless, quite frankly. So, you know, all we had to do was do, do the work a wee bit better than them and explain to our potential customers what it was that we could offer to them. So, you know, differentiation, great service and a completely engaged team is a really good recipe for any business, not necessarily a guarantee. And then having the passion to throw yourself at it um, with belief and purpose. And that team, they were, they were so proud to be part of um, building that bank and that, that, um, that, that people believed that they could do it. And um, so yeah, I'm proud to have been a part of that, and they're still going strong. And we were the best performing bank on the Bermuda Stock Exchange pretty quickly. It's a small local exchange, it's a big listing exchange, global listing exchange, but a little exchange, but we were pretty proud of what we did. Um, but there's no complexity in any of that or in a lot of business. It's just a very simple formula, right? But it taught me a lot. taught me a lot about asset liability management, taught me a lot about um, managing teams and the power of unleashing people. And, um, you know, it was that next step for me in terms of thinking about what I, what I could do in the world, if you like.
0: During this period you also became chair of the Bermuda Stock Exchange and you also sat on the board of the Bermuda sorry, Monetary Authority. Take us inside some of those positions and, and the ex- exposure that it gave you.
1: The Stock Exchange um, chair came, the heads of the banks always rotated the chair of the Stock Exchange. I remember a really funny cocktail party where me and the two guys who were running the other banks were standing in the receiving line shaking people's hands. And um, everybody who, seemed to, who came through seemed to believe that I was the wife of one of the two guys. So it was, a, I think I was an unexpected uh, CEO and chair of the stock exchange, um, but it was another piece of learning, right? How does the market trade and the, you know, how does the domestic market trade? How does the listing market trade? I went on the board of the Monetary Authority after I stepped down from running the bank um, when I was um, setting Adara up. And that was also, you know, that poacher turned gamekeeper thing where you suddenly get to look inside a regulator. Um, uh, I chaired the investment committee for the BMA and I I was on the board for quite a long time and they regulated not only the banks and the financial services sector, but reinsurance and insurance market more broadly. And so, and I I did that for quite a few years actually. and, And that was another sort of piece of learning to put yourself into the head of how a regulator thinks, to look at how important it is when you're a small country, you know, Bermuda, I always say, it's like the little engine that could to regulate yourself really well, um, particularly when there's such a push against offshore. So being inside that world and looking at things slightly differently was, it was a great experience, um, as was the, the exchange.
0: So three years at BCB, when you reflect on that today, proudest achievements, what would they be?
1: Uh, working with that team. Um, it's all about the people, right. There's a great Māori um, saying in New Zealand, you know, that we you know what is it that matters most in the world, you know, te tangata, te tangata, te tangata. It's the people, it's the people, it's the people. And that is true for my life. So um, being part of standing with a team of people who were un- unleashed in a way where, you know, their brilliance was properly rewarded the bank stood proud on its own two feet. You know, we're the first bank in Bermuda. used to be in Bermuda, and this is a form of social control, which, you know, to the conversation about how important fair financial services are, mortgages in Bermuda were always at call. And so if you step down a line um, and cause trouble against the governing, um, you know, sort of power brokers, you always had this fear, and the black Bermuda community really had this fear, your mortgage is going to be pulled. We were the first bank in Bermuda to change that up um and so people's mortgages were not at risk as long as they were not in default you know little things like that i feel really proud of being part of you know the little engine that could that stood up and roared if you like there are a lot of there are a lot of great moments
0: correct me if i'm wrong but between you leaving bcb in 96 and then adara partners in 98 there was a essentially a gap year of a, quite a lot of travel in 1997 what informed you your thinking and what were some of the experiences alongside yeah. those travels
1: yeah when i stepped down from the bank there was it was sort of one of those moments in life an early midlife crisis but I, I knew that i was going to i i was i had this learning and i'd always had this passion around i'm going to use this learning to affect social change but i wasn't sure how But I knew after I'd been running the bank for a few years, it was kind of now or never. And I think if you've got a, if you're an entrepreneur, you feel that. It was like, right, I've been a lawyer in great law firms. I've run a bank, you know, I've done the, chaired the exchange. It's now or never, but I didn't quite know how it was all going to manifest. So I kind of threw my life in at that point and decided I'm going to take time out to really think. So I came home to Australia, walked up and down the beach and thought a lot about what I wanted, who I wanted to be and what I wanted in my life and I also went on the road. Once I knew I was going to head in the definition of international development, I thought, right, I'm going to go learn. And so I spent time in Nepal walking, just trying to understand how the world of people in poverty and international development worked and whether or not I could be helpful. And I spent time in Uganda, you know, I hired a Jeep and, and, um, and drove around. Um, and so it was like giving yourself a little MBA in international development. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, and formulating my thoughts on right, this is what the next step is going to look like. And I've, I often say to people, give yourself that gift. You know, life is a, and I think business life, other, other people's lives in other sectors too, can be a bit of a treadmill, right? You just you start and you wake up and go, oh my God, here I am. I'm married, I'm doing this, I've stepped up a career, I've got the house, I've got the mortgage. But actually very rarely do we give ourselves permission to say, if you are able to take time to really think about who you are and who you want to be, and so, and I've done that a couple of times in my life and I, and um, it's been a really good call for me. So that p- intervening period, without taking that time out, I don't think I could ever come up with an idea quite as crazy as Adara, or, and that and fit me quite as well as Adara did in terms of the next STEM.
0: Let's talk about the launch of Adara Group in 1998. What was the original guiding philosophy?
1: Fundamental belief that no matter where you're born in the world, you're entitled to essential service delivery. And I've always been enraged, actually, at, at the terrible inequity in our planet. And I've always been aware that if I was born a little girl anywhere else but New Zealand, my life could have been so different. So, first of all, it came from this passion around injustice and doing something about that. And secondly, came from my belief that you could bridge this divide that we talked about earlier, and and that you could use the power of business to generate revenue to affect change. So simple idea, or I thought it was simple, people thought it was absolutely crackers, but simply I'm going to build a business, I'm going to hire bankers, they're going to go out into the market and they're going to relentlessly make money, but instead of that money going to shareholders, they're going to hand the money over the hall to the man or woman sitting beside them who's going to be an international development specialist and who knows, who thinks all day, about evidence-based best practice service delivery to people in extreme poverty and who doesn't have to worry about the money. That was with the idea and it's, it just made intuitive sense to me but it, it, was, we were, it was early in the kind of social enterprise era and the impact era but it was that. It was the combination of those two things, a passionate belief in social justice and a belief that there was a different, slightly different model that we could use if you weren't born of wealth, if you didn't have an, a, you know, a, a stash of cash, if you didn't have a big endowment, where well, you could use your skills to affect change. Um, so it was a lot of thinking over many years that, that event, and then the, the time off that really sort of took me there.
0: We're now 25, almost 25 years into that journey. How is the group diversified? And
1: can't quite believe that actually. It's funny thing to say, (laughs) quarter of a century, just getting started. Um, uh, How are we? Where are we now? God, it's been this winding journey, joy and tears. Oh God, I've made a lot of mistakes, a lot. And it sounds kind of trite, but it's true to say that our successes have come when I've been smart enough to operate as a team member and (laughs) the worst mistakes I always made myself alone, but where are we now? And I'm enormously proud of what Adara looks like today. So it is a a quite significant global, international non-government organisation. We are on a world stage and known as as leaders in a couple of things that are really important. So we are amongst the most remote service deliveries in the world, health and education. So to give you a sense of that, our most remote project, 25 days walk from a Nepali road system right up on the Tibetan border. And we have um, the first thing I ever did up there or the team ever did up there was a school. Everybody told me you'll never do good education in remote areas. You won't ever get a teacher up there. It just got. It was granted um, status as a top five school in the country a couple of years ago, and it's a centre of excellence. Now there's 20 schools, um, and there's also wide healthcare up there. So we're really well known for our remote community development. Very remote. Um, we're also on a global stage with our work in um, maternal, newborn, child health, but more specifically care to tiny wee babies, premies and low birth weights, and their mums that are born in places without consistent electricity supply. Um, There's a horrendous amount of death in um, low-income countries for um, mums and, and their children, and there's a lot of prematurity because mums are often undernourished and they're doing hard labor work and same thing people said to me don't even try to do facilities-based care in low resource settings best you'll do is get an immunization in the arm of a kid I thought that was a complete human rights offense so those two areas so the INGO um, international not for profits pretty well known it's very deep in its specialty service delivery and big knowledge sharing pillar now so we we talk relentlessly about our mistakes as well as our successes and try and help others who want to do the same kind of work and then we have we started with one business now we have two um, the second business is a smarter version. If you're an entrepreneur, you always iterate, and I know it drives everyone mad, but I'm constantly iterating. Um, the second business I launched seven years ago, um, it's called Adara Partners, launched it in Australia, and, um, and I'm really happy with how that's going, but I'm still iterating. But I, uh, it's a model um, where the collective talent of the best advisors in Australia pool together to advise large Australian corporates on very complex matters and those top advisors, head of Citibank, chair of Citibank, chair of Goldman's, you know, the, the three of the heads of Baron Joey, you know, really senior advisors, they work for Adara without recompense, pro bono, it's pro bono investment banking, and all the fees go to support the, the work of the INGO. Um, so we're about 72 million dollars in, in terms of our, our funding to, to the work on the ground, and about 22 of that has come directly from the Adara businesses. So one in every three, just short of that, um, has come out of our businesses, and it's, it's another model, and it's a model I want to. T- I'm very much focused now, as the world's reopening, to get the model into Wall Street.
0: He won't like me mentioning him, but as I'm it, and you, you alluded to it there, there's been two major people in particular behind the scenes that have assisted on the Adara Partners front and David Gonski AC and, and Matthew Grounds AM. What sort of influence have they been able to have
1: Oh, they're wonderful. I love David and Matthew. I mean, actually, I love them all. So I've had 15. I've just lost one who had to step down because of another conflict with the board, Mike Roche. So there's 14 of them now. All of them have contributed in different ways. There's no question that David Gonski and Matthew Grounds foundational in terms of... Um, and because the model is unusual. So one thing I did get right when I was figuring out how to create this new model I knew that I had to have the best in the country to give myself a shot at having it work. So I spent quite a lot of time figuring out who were the best and who were the highest integrity and where was that Venn diagram intersection. So Matthew and David sat right in the center of that. Um, and I, a lot of people told me, senior, senior men in particular in the community in Australia told me I was going to fail. It's always nice when people tell you that and um, you can prove them wrong. But I know that when I launched, and um, Guy Fowler's another one, you know, Guy, Matthew, David, I'm now Christian, Tony Oz, Christian Johnson, Tony Osmond, Alana Atlas, Catherine Brenner, Cynthia Scott, Mike Roche, Tim Burroughs has been absolutely legend, ex chair of Goldman's, Graham Goldsmith, ex head of ECM, ex vice chair of Goldman's. I mean, these, these are brilliant men and women. Having people of that stature backing what we were doing and actually leading our advice work gave me a better than even chance of success. Um, I remember in the early days, somebody said to me when I was out and about trying to explain it, and then somebody said to me, God, you've got a good board, Audette. And I said, they're not my bloody board. They're my worker bees. They're the ones running the deals. You know, and you know, how, how lucky am I? I'm constantly shaking my head that um, they threw their lot in with me. But one of the things that I had theorized is that they would love it and they would be proud of it, and it's true. They do, and it, they're emotional about it. Guy Fowler came to Nepal with me. Alana Atlas has been to Nepal with me. You know, they know that they're brilliance. When you're an investment banker, you don't often get the chance to know. Oh my gosh, if I advise, you know, we're advising Pendle at the moment. We've advised Ausnet, you know, Macquarie Atlas. We've had we advise Commonwealth Bank. We've advised very great companies. They know that when they're giving advice for Adara on these fascinating issues, where they're truly, truly specialist. The result of that, the fees that they generate, are directly saving lives of people in low-income countries in a very serious way. And, you know, how how good does that feel, right? Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> so so far, so good. There's there's more to come, but I'm feeling pretty good about how our Partners is doing.
0: And what are some of the programs that you're working on or have worked on this year in particular in some of those developing nations?
1: Thanks for asking that question. Um, the work is really beautiful. Two that I'd really highlight in, um, in the Maternal Newborn Health we've um, created, again, you'll see this as a theme, we're really into models. If you do something well in a model, and other then other people can copy you. So a big piece of our work is what we call Adara Newborn, and it's a multifaceted delivery system to support mums and kids at risk in low-income settings. And it's gained huge traction in not only in Uganda, so we're on the National Newborn Steering Committee in Uganda, um, but in addition to that in a in wider setting so in the it, the developing world or low income countries generally are looking at this work now and taking pieces of this work so the growth of um, adara newborn and that piece that package as it spreads out through the country you know we're targeting we're um, uh, touching half a million um, mums and babies over the course of the next few years but it's much bigger than that because it's a model in this last year one of the things that has amazed me you know when you you work with do this work you work with people of greatness all the time i'm an endless optimist because i work with people who are truly huge courageous leaders health workers working on the ground, Ugandans, Nepalis, the American health team, the Aussies who are here, they have managed to deliver service in the face of horrendous situation with COVID, Um, almost no access to vaccines, massive economic meltdown. At the moment, we're in the middle of an Ebola outbreak and crisis, and yet every single day, hundreds of them are still walking out into the wards, on into the fields, into the community to, to deliver service. So, um, the the work is fabulous, but the context has been really hard, and and so and then if I flip across the world in terms of other work, Nepal, the Nepal team in the remote community development, the work that they have done, the learnings they took from COVID. So we we um, launched. Nepal's first paediatric COVID ward. We provided safe accommodation for health workers. We went like that. We changed from all the 20 schools we're in, from teaching in school to teaching through the radio, teaching in, you know, school in a box, in small groups, outdoors. There was so much change of service delivery in in so much complexity. And we've, that those teams have taken what they learned during that time. And now they're building the work in an even better way. So the sort of growth in both those streams of work has been, I think, been outstanding. And I was lucky enough finally to get back to Uganda in July. And it was so beautiful to be there. I have to say, you know, I said to the, it was emotional after being away from them for two and a half years. And, um, you know, we just sat on the ground and hugged and cried and talked and laughed and ate and celebrated. And, and I got to be, and I was out back in the communities, I've been so many times over the last 25 years, but to be back there and see the work expanded deeper, better, the continuous cycle of, are we doing good enough? Is this excellent enough? Are we providing appropriate service? Um, to see how that had grown during that period when that, things were so tough and none of us were able to be there to support them, even our global health teams out of Seattle, you know, just took my breath away really.
0: It's easy, given the isolation of Australia, to forget that so many of these things are going on right across the world, in particular in developing countries yes. and, and nations. How do you get that message out? How do you get more people involved and aware?
1: Oh, such a good question. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, the, the paradox of, of um, life. So, you know, what, what, what should COVID have taught us? We're all connected. What did it teach us? Fear the stranger and shrink to, uh, to, 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 uh, to protect ourselves. Um, you know, 200 million more people are gonna go into extreme poverty in the next six months by UN predictions. 98 million people went into extreme poverty due to COVID. So sometimes when I wonder, uh, you know, I want to yell at people, it's, do you know what's going on? And, and I've, I've, but yelling at people isn't generally very helpful. So, you know, you, you can, I, I hope that we inspire people to lift their heads up a little bit. We tell a lot of stories, they meet our teams, our team, we had a lot of our team, our senior Ugandan, and and American teams here. So you try to connect people with their hearts, um, as well as with the facts. Um, but I, I think we need to, we're living through a decade that is going to be written about and talked about for a hundred years. And if ever each of us of privilege is called to use our skills to do something great, it's right now. Right? We're, we're living in the face of climate change, we're living in huge economic instability. The world is dividing um, in many ways, including with wealth and income inequity. And um, the consequences of, of those factors, You know, you add Ukraine, add the complexity in China, enormous. So if ever there was a time to sort of stand up and, and reach to be your best, it's right now. And so how do we explain that to people? I think probably the best you can do is kind of try to show people that it's really possible. I'm not a fan of lecturing people, um, and in our own little way, you know, we're one tiny piece of the puzzle at Adara, but we're out there trying to say to people, hey, you know, you can impact lives, you know, you can influence change, and you can inspire people, you know, to do whatever they're doing in their own corner, so that our part in this decade is to stand on the side of trying to make change, not just to hide from, from the complexity that's happening. But it's constant frustration.
0: How do people come, how, how can they become involved in, in the work that you do?
1: Well, there's lots of ways. <laughs> Thank you for that very nice question, I appreciate it. We, we love our donors, so, and, and because of our businesses, 100 cents in the dollar that, that anyone gives us go straight into our project work, that's, that's one way, um, which is great. We love it when corporates um, approach us who need independent advice, second opinion on mergers and acquisitions, equity capital markets, complex, prob- co- complex problem solving. So we love our clients. I can provide the best people in Australia working in pairs to advise. So it's not just about the fact that you know the work, the fees go to, to good so people can do business with us. I'm always quietly you know, looking for the, the next brilliant um, corporate advisor to join the panel. We keep that very tight and and, um, and we only are looking for the best, but people can do that. But more than that, I think people in their own ways can use their own skills, whether it's for Adara or, or, um, or elsewhere, to raise their voice about what is not OK in the planet, to use the platforms they've got, social media platforms and others, um, traditional media platforms to speak, to do this kind of interview um, and, and put it out to the world to say, hey, you know, world, there's something we can do. And so there's a million different ways to create change. You know, Adara is just one example of that. So either by connecting with us, any other brilliant not-for-profit, and gee, there are a lot of them, but just in the end, using your mastery for purpose, the best that you possibly can. Um, Every single person can do that.
0: I thought we'd close off our discussion with a few more general topics. You also on the board of westpac you appointed i think from memory in september of last year yep. what are the big issues in the in the banking sector at the moment
1: <laughs> there are some big issues right i mean the, the the greatness in banking at the moment i think is going to be about standing with customers as they go through a very complex time so you know rise in interest rates rise in inflation volatility in the markets more generally you know there's a feeling you know you look at the consumer confidence and what's happening there of insecurity and um, lack of confidence. So, you know, I think bankers um, who are really great bankers are thinking a lot about that. What are my customers experiencing? In addition to that, we've got climate change. What are our customers experiencing here in the floods? You know, we went through, I lived through the fires down the south coast in 2019. It was absolutely horrendous. Now it's flooding. So thinking about what's happening every day to our customers and trying to meet their needs with great quality, long-term support, financial services support, I think that's that's one thing that bankers are thinking about. We're obviously all thinking about what's going to happen with interest rates and, um, and, um rolling the dice and playing the guessing game there. And what's going to happen with the markets through volatility? We're looking at, are we going to go into global recessions or depressions? all the economic factors that influence how SME SMEs going to operate. We've just seen the the, um, the failure in the last couple of days of a key company in the supply chain, what's going to happen in supply chain. There's plenty to keep um, uh, bankers <laughs> busy at the moment. But, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, this is a great moment. Westpac is a great bank and I'm very proud to sit on the board and I think we'll see, you know, Westpac, you know, taking its proper place, looking after its customers, providing great banking services figuring out how to de-risk banking while looking after our customers and also figuring out where opportunities are. If you're not thinking about the green revolution and you're a banker you really you're in a cupboard somewhere so you know there's a lot of opportunity coming as well as complex turmoil and risk but it's not boring put it that way.
0: (laughs) And then in terms of what's next you've clearly had an extraordinary life a remarkable career what's left that you still want to achieve?
1: god tons i do i mean i, I truly mean it uh, that i really feel we adara is just getting started and me too i certainly want to take the adara model into uh, larger financial markets i think that could be a great contribution you know it should be the most prestigious thing any investment banker does at the top of his or her game to work on a deal cross their competitive boundaries for the best companies in the world with all proceeds going to vulnerable clients so i'm, I'm really determined about that I'm thinking a lot about how to use the Adara story or our public um, story to inspire others. I don't know what that really looks like. And of course I think I've got, I hope I've got um, decades ahead of supporting the next few generations that are coming up. Um, having a 25 year um, background and history now, the sort of lived experience as people would say, I hope that's useful to the next crop of digital natives and youngsters who believe this kind of thing is possible but have never actually met people who've done it. And so I think we've got, we've got things to do there. We've also got a lot of life to save in the developing world and I fully intend um, to be a part of that until I breathe my last breath.
0: Audit XL, a absolute pleasure and privilege, as I mentioned in the opening, having you on the series. Well done on such a remarkable career and, and such extraordinary achievements. Thanks again for your time.
1: Thanks, lovely chatting to you.